What's up, my friends, and welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're talking about how do you go from zero, from nothing, from scratch, all the way to launching a crowdfunding campaign. And I'm talking to Kyle Susenbach, who is right in the middle of figuring all this out. He's about to launch a campaign. As of the airing of this episode, the campaign has launched, and we're just going through the 10 steps along the way to make it happen. You know, with this show, two things I love to do is one, talk to people who are just bona fide experts, been doing something for years. They, they've worked on a mechanism, you know, for 10 games or something like that. They were just absolute experts on a topic. But then another thing I like to do is talk to people who are just right in the middle of figuring things out, like they're in the process of becoming experts, because those two different types of people give you very different answers a lot of times to the same questions. People that have been doing something for a long time, they have that wisdom, they have all that knowledge and information. They can look back and go, oh yeah, over the last 10 years of doing this, this is kind of what I've learned. But the problem is a lot of times they forget what it was like to be in the middle, to be in the thick of it, to be a beginner and learning. And a lot of times they forget the little things along the way. They'll remember the catastrophic. They'll remember the big traumatic you know, mess ups and, and things that cost them a bunch of time and effort and money and all that. And they'll remember the big successes, things like that. But they, they'll forget the little minor details because they just kind of get lost to the sands of time. And so it's so great to talk to someone who's right in the middle of figuring something out because they're, they're right there. They, they remember these minor details because they happened 15 minutes ago. And so really it was just a pleasure to talk to Kyle about the game that he's bringing to market. He's doing it in a very different way than most designers, most publishers get into things, get into crowdfunding. And we just talked through 10 basic steps and then we just dive into each one as, as much as we can. And I offer a lot of my own personal stories and anecdotes and my experience, you know, after doing this for a pretty long time. So you kind of get the best of both worlds with this episode. You get Kyle's perspective as somebody right in the middle, and then you get my perspective as someone who has done it for a while. And I think this is an episode where you can probably take a lot of notes. If you're wanting to launch your own campaigns on Kickstarter, GameFound, whatever you want to do, or, or just bringing a game to market in general, I think you'll get a lot of value, a lot of really useful, pragmatic, helpful advice and ideas in this episode. And it's a long one. Like we dove into these things pretty, pretty deeply. This is one of the longest episodes I've ever done. And so I hope you find a lot of value in it. In other news, today's episode is sponsored by GameFound, tabletop crowdfunding by gamers for gamers. GameFound continues to roll out amazing new features, things like stretch pay, follower goals, and dozens of other things that are built from the ground up for your campaign. Things on the back end and the dashboard that make your life as a creator easier and things that are on the front end that make the backing experience so much more enjoyable. So if you're looking to run a crowdfunding campaign in the near future, GameFound might be the right choice for your project. And I can speak from personal experience from working with them and running a campaign on their platform that they do everything they can to set you up for success. And I highly recommend you check them out. So go over to GameFound.com to learn more. In other news, today's episode is sponsored by Snapships Tactics, the strategic miniatures game you play with modular, fully customizable spaceship models. Choose from hundreds of Lego-like plastic parts, building unique units from the ground up. And the parts you choose matter, adding custom actions to your ship's control panel so every ship flies and fights differently. Build a squadron of ships and command them in tactical combat against an opponent, or play solo or co-op against the game's devious AI system. Tactics is available now at your local game store or online at SnapshipsTactics.com. Snapships Tactics, because the best ship is the one that you create. In other news, this episode is sponsored by Crowdfunding Nerds, also known as Next Level Web. This group of crowdfunding specialists has worked on over 100 projects and helped raise nearly $15 million. 
But the truly amazing part is that most of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They charge flat fees and offer simple monthly pay-as-you-go plans. And their record for funding projects on day one is over 90%. I've personally been working with them for years, and they have been instrumental in helping me raise hundreds of thousands of dollars for my own campaigns. Andrew and his team are honest, hardworking, and reliable, and they have been absolutely phenomenal to work with. So if your game is awesome, but your email list is pitiful, visit crowdfundingnerds.com and fill out a contact form today. And now, please help me welcome Kyle Susenbach. So, Kyle, really appreciate you being here. Really excited to talk to you about business and, you know, what it looks like to go from nothing, literally ground zero, starting from scratch, all the way to being able to push that big green button that says launch and, and launch a crowdfunding campaign. And I'm excited because I've, I've kind of been able to see you grow over this journey in a lot of ways, right? I, I've been uh, checking out the game that you've been working on and bringing it to life. It's got a lot of really cool things that I'm, I'm so excited for you to like tell more and more people about this game that you've been working on this like massive RPG, super amazing narrative. It's awesome. And so, but I've also been able to see you kind of grow in the business side of things and learn. And I've been able to kind of help and consult and, and coach on some different things. And so the reason I want to chat with you in particular about the business side of things is because you are right here in the thick of it. I've talked to lots of people over the years that have been doing this for a long time. And that's great because you get some really amazing stories and anecdotes and information from somebody that has, you know, 10, 20 years of experience and you get to learn and grow from their wisdom. However, the downside of that is when somebody's been doing this for a long time, they kind of forget what it was like to be a beginner. For sure. They forget what happened 15 years ago and the mistakes that they made that maybe weren't these catastrophic mistakes, but if they could go back you know, to that time, they would remember and realize, oh yeah, there was these holes I fell in. They weren't deep holes. <laughs> you know, they weren't massive. I screwed up the entire shipping of a campaign and it like blew up my company. Like Not like that, but just like the little minor day-to-day kind of issues that you run into, you forget about when you've been doing this for a long time. And so I'm excited to chat with you today, just the steps, almost like this 10 steps in the, in the road of going from nothing to being able to put out something, right? And so uh, first of all, before we get into those steps, Tell me about kind of where you're at, right? When you first got into this, however long ago, which is not that long ago, um, tell me kind of your thoughts going in and compare that maybe to the reality you've run into. Because a lot of times people are super excited, like, oh, I'm going to go do this and do that. And they get their business cards and they get a logo and a t-shirt and a website. <laughs> and, and then they run into the actual business wow. of things. So tell me about kind of what your mindset was going in, like why you wanted to get started. And then the reality, the wall that you may sure. have run into. Yeah, I would say about five years ago, I made the shift of like, I think I want to actually make games. And I wasn't sure whether or not I wanted to publish or pitch yet, but I was like, I want to make real games. And a buddy of mine said to me like, hey, we could do this. And so for about two years, we worked on the design and that design is somewhere in my closet. But I mean, I had I had talked to artists, I'd worked up contracts, I had, uh, oh yeah, business cards, uh, sell sheets, never put it in front of a single, I, I did so much like background extra work just because it was fun and exciting. But yeah, na- now I'm <laughs> certainly, I I shifted about three months ago into this like very fast track of like, I am publishing a game as fast as possible because I found the game that I wanted to publish first. And so that's the, the yes, this big massive RPG game is in the background, but most of these lessons are found through the five years of that. And then very specifically through these last three months of like, everyday grinding on getting it across the finish line. 
Yeah, that's another interesting thing about your story is your first published game is not going to be your design. You've got your own design. You've got some amazing stuff coming later. So tell me that thought process. What what made you kind of step back? Because that's, I don't know if anybody who's done that. You know, I know people who have gotten into publishing, not wanting to really publish anything of theirs. They want to do the publishing stuff. They're not really into the design part. But I don't know any designers that started off publishing somebody else's game. Like, I'm sure they're out there, but I don't know of any off the top of my head. So tell me that thought press and like why you're doing it that way. Yeah, it is extremely practical. And I'm just trying to be as humble as possible. I want to build a community that is absolutely in love with our products. And I want to do it well by them the first time. So my game is hundred. I mean, it's, it's an awakened realms level of it's hundreds and hundreds of cards, 200 hours plus of content narrative campaign. You know, it's Dungeons and Dragons brought to life basically. And I just knew there was going to be all sorts of pitfalls and steps that I, you know, even, okay, I'm trying to avoid miniatures and, you know, there's some stuff I'm trying to do to be wise, but I went to Proto ATL back in March of this year and saw this guy's design of basically tic-tac-toe with cards and it's strategic. And I was like, look, 18 cards, beautiful. Like, can I publish your game? As soon as I played it, I said, can I publish this game for you? I will publish it as soon as possible. And he was like, sure, I've never, I, he had, I mean, he's new to all this as well. But for me, I wanted to break, cut my teeth on an 18 card wallet game that is, you know, let's make hundreds or maybe thousands of dollars worth of mistakes, not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousand dollars of mistakes. Yeah, exactly. And also the lead time, like you said, this is an 18 card game. You can, you can get that to market. I mean, tomorrow, I mean, you sure. can get some art done, sure. some graphic design, mm-hmm. you only need a handful of images and assets and things like that. You know, you put out some marketing. You can't do a lot of marketing though, because it's only 18 cards at the same time. You're thinking, well, I'm not trying to make a ton of money off this. I'm trying to learn and build up a brand and things like that. So from a publishing standpoint, lots of cool angles because you're looking ahead. You're not playing the 10 minute vision. Yeah. You're playing the 10 year vision, right? I'm, so, I'm not planning on putting my kids through college with this game. I My yeah. hope is that this teaches me a lot of things I don't know. And I'm even willing to invest a lot into this. I mean, if I broke even on this game, that would be fantastic. But a lot of the marketing I'm doing, I'm not expecting necessarily to see that return because I am just trying to build up a crowd. I'm trying to, this is a, you know, a college course of investment for me. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. I also think it's really wise in doing exactly what I said a moment ago and like going a different path, right? Publishing somebody else's game. And that way, one, you're not quite invest as invested as you would be thinking like, well, this is my baby. And I've talked to so many designers that they just, they don't see reality as it is because this is something they've worked on forever. You know, they put so much soul and heart and love and time and effort and money and resources into this thing. And then you run into some issues. One, you have a tendency to not listen to reality. Like if someone else is like, hey, I don't think this is a good idea. It's like, well, you're not going to hear that. Or you need to change X, Y, and Z because of, you know, these reasons. But they don't hear it because it's their baby. For sure. I cover that in point four. That's that's important. Okay. Well, we're going to come to point four and just, I'm not iterate as much on that as we'll get into in just a minute. But I think it's super wise to go at it from that angle. And and you're also, there's skin in the game, right? You're working with someone else. And so there's that motivation to push play, right? To push launch because you want them to have a good experience as well. And so, you know, I've I've run into this too in my own company. When I work with other designers, when I'm publishing somebody else's game, you know, I want to do right by them as best I can. You know, there's always delays. There's things you run into and maybe there's parts of the game that are like aren't quite ready yet. And you kind of have to push through development and kind of push this things. That's what I'm running into right now. I've got a game I'm really excited to get on the market, but it's just not quite there yet, you know, and, and it's tough when you have to push things back. But 
I think it's I think it's smart. I think I think more designers that want to get into publishing really need to think about what does it look like to do it this way instead of just saying I've got a game I made I want to put it out there on Kickstarter. Because again, if you're playing the long game and you're thinking I want to do this for a while, it might be a better way to go. But let's get into these 10 steps, these 10 ideas. What is the first thing? I'm just figuring it out. Ground zero. What do I do right off the bat? Yeah. So I'm assuming you've played board games or have some interest in them. That's the only foundation I'm expecting. That and would be you, step zero. Right. Play some games, have an idea. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. right. And, but after and then that, you have the epiphany of like, hey, maybe I want to do this on my own. So I would say the very base is number one, like grow your knowledge base. That is, you know, of course, Board Game Design Lab podcasts. That is Board Game Business podcast. That is everything published by Stonemeyer Games ever. Um, that is play lots of games, play all the top games that are coming out, play the top 10 games on BGG, learn about what BGG is. It's always interesting to me when I meet a designer who doesn't know what BGG is. It's like, you need to start there. Um, that is just going to give you so much more understanding of leading into step two, but like figuring out like, what do I want out of this and where am I, you know, where am I going? Yeah, for sure. One thing that really hit home with me is I heard this from a kind of a business guru a while back. And he said, you know, people are always so concerned about the things that they don't know in business, right? But those aren't the things that really destroy your company. You know, if you know that you don't know about accounting or logistics or shipping or manufacturing, well, you, you know that. And so you can watch YouTube videos, you can read books, you can hire other people, you can do a million different things to gain the knowledge necessary to then know those things. He said, the issue with businesses are the things you don't know that you don't know. It's the things that come out of left field that you don't even know exist, right? And the only way to overcome that is to read, to learn, to listen, to grow, to do all the things and approach things from, from angles that maybe you weren't even thinking about, right? And and then be around other people. That's another thing. And kind of going on BGG or being in the BGDL, uh, Facebook community, things like that. Being around other people in that space because they're going to ask questions. They're going to bring things forward. You're like, oh shoot, I didn't even know that was a thing. What is what is VAT? You know, I can't tell you how many people have sent me a message or I've seen it all in, online where it's like, hey, what does VAT stand for? Okay, well, okay, this could be an issue, right? You know, and if you don't know that you don't know about that, it's going to hit you out of left field and it potentially could sink your company if it's a certain type of thing, right? And so to your point, just gain as much knowledge as possible. How long did you spend just learning before you like really wanted to travel down this road? Five years. <laughs> I mean, Still in process. I've been, I've been listening to your podcast since it came out. I've been listening to uh, broke, uh, Broken Limb, Forbidden Limb, whatever that one was before that. Forbidden they limb. changed the board game yeah. business. Um, I, there's probably four or five other ones that I've mostly listened to all of them. And I just, and I, I've read a ton of Jamie Segmeyer's articles. I just, I just find it fascinating partly. And I wanted to, you know, find the little gem in each of these podcasts to be like, Oh, I didn't know about that. Or I didn't think about that. Or, Oh, how can I you know, apply that? Yeah, absolutely. All right, cool. So I'm growing in knowledge. I'm learning, I'm reading. I'm, I'm looking at the things I know that I don't know, figuring that out. I'm learning about the things I don't know that I don't know, figuring that out. Now what, what's step two? Figure out what you want to do. Identify your goal with all this. So the big three that I would say, and there's obviously a, this is a spectrum, but like you want to design a game to pitch to a publisher. Great. Do that. That's awesome. That's not really the target that I have for this whole podcast, but that's an awesome way to go and more power to you. Uh, two would be to 
create a game that you have on your shelf that friends can play at a higher level than just, you know, cut out cards and, you know, something you might do as a summer project. Um, and then three would be a business, something to make it profitable. I might go a little bit further just for my own vision, which is I want to make the best board games in the world, which I know is silly and maybe ambitious. I, I don't mean to be pretentious in that. When I set out to make my big game and then I came across this other game, one of the big reasons I wanted to switch to that was I think my big game will improve dramatically because of the things I learned. Like I would rather, and not that, you know, we can only have one shot at this. Like we don't, we have lots of shots at this. And I think that's a good thing to remember, but I, I want to, ch- I want to change people's lives with the games I make. And I know that sounds big, but it's like, that's why I'm doing this. Well, if you're not going into it, I don't think it's pretentious to, to think that way. Uh, you know, if you're going into some kind of artistic space with the intent of putting it out there to the public, right? You're not just doing it for yourself. So there's already a certain amount of ego in there. Like it just has to be. You have to have for at sure. least a, an ounce. I have something that you might be interested in. Right. Now, I believe as, you know, talk, I talked to so many artists that are so introverted and so much like, oh, my art is not worth any money. It's not worth other people's time. And that frustrates me because I, I think good art is worth money. And I think good art is worth time. Like it's, that is something you kind of have to overcome just as a creative person a lot of times. But as far as, you know, the whole, I want to make the, I want to do something that's the best in the world. I want to do something that makes a difference in the world that changes lives in some way. I think that's the best way to go into it. Not in an arrogant way or prideful way of thinking I have all the answers. I've got it all figured out. I'm the smartest person in the room. No, no, no. There's a different way to do that. And I'm reminded, strange enough, of the professional wrestler, Diamond Dallas Page. Do you know DDP? Are you no, familiar with DDP? I don't. I don't. Okay. Well, stick stick with me. I think this sure, has sure. an interesting analogy. When Diamond Dallas Page got into the wrestling business as a manager, which means he would be the guy on the outside of the ring, kind of doing the little fun things, the dirty things on the mic, you know, like messing up matches, whatever. But he's not the guy taking all the bumps and, and doing all the stuff in the ring. He's not the, the performer, right? Well, then he started thinking, well, I think I could do this. Like, I think I could be a legit professional wrestler. And so he started doing the training. He went to the training center in Atlanta back when WCW was a thing and all that. And when he got into it, somebody else who'd been in the business forever and ever was talking to him. And they said, kind of what you're saying, like, hey, what's your vision? What's your goal? And DDP said, I, you know, I think if I could get up to like the mid card, you know, like win the Intercontinental Championship, not like the World Heavyweight Championship, like, you know, but I just want to kind of be in there and, and be good enough. And because at the time he was like in his late thirties, early forties, like he was old for wrestling. Mm-hmm. Like that's old, that's an old body to be in there, like bouncing around and getting hit with chairs and stuff like that. Yeah, for sure. And so it made sense, like, you know, from a rational, pragmatic standpoint, it makes sense. But that old school guy looked at him and said, I don't understand why you would do this. If you don't want to be the best in the world, if you don't want to have the world heavyweight championship belt around your waist, I don't understand why you would even start doing this at all. Like if you're going to do it, do it to be the best, knowing that you're probably not going to do it. Like you're probably not going to get that far. Like that's, that's a handful of people in the entire world that get to be at that you know 1%. And DDP took that to heart, went on to become, you know, WCW world heavyweight championship multiple times. One of the most loved, beloved characters ever, right? One of my favorite wrestlers of all time. So in the same way, if you're going to get into designing games, publishing games, don't get into it to be the mid card, you know, to be ranked 8,000 on BGG. Like get in there to be like, I'm going to have the number one game in the world and and take that approach. And because honestly, there's a different process that goes into it. You know, when I was playing football for a one double A team at Murray State University, it was a different process. We knew who we were, right? It's like we didn't go into it with a championship mentality because we weren't going to win a championship. 
Like it just wasn't going to happen. And that you just do things differently. I get to Auburn University and they're like, we're winning the SEC. We're trying to compete for a national championship, guys. And it was a whole nother mindset, whole different like approach to everything. And so if you can do that artistically, that way you do put in the time, you do put in the, like, the knowledge and, and growing and information, things like that. I think that's just a better way to go. So to your point, man, do your best to be the best. And I, th- I think that's the best way to, to handle it. Yeah. And, I, and I, the only reason I, I mentioned those three is because I don't want that to be a barrier to entry for somebody who says, well, I don't have the time or the capacity or the interest in doing that. I, I do think there's value in just our hobby. I think game design is one of the most exciting cross-medium means of creation that I have ever experienced. It is writing and art and design and UI and UX and experience. I mean, it's, it's amazing. I, one practical tip in this moment, like if you are at all interested in that third space, watch something by watch an interview with Mr. Beast, Mr. Beast, surely. I mean, that, that's a little bit more culturally relevant, maybe than the, the wrestler example, watch him talk about videos. He doesn't want to make money. If you watch any of his videos, you know that that's not why he's doing this. He wants to make the best videos possible. And it, he just hasn't stopped. The man is a, is a, is a beast. He's, a, he's insane. And so I just think that like, that's the kind of, he had, he had a quote in there that said, nobody has spent more time on anything ever than I have spent on YouTube. And he says, because I, I do it 18 hours a day, every day since I was 10 or whatever. 13? You know, yeah, 12 or 13. Yeah, something yeah. crazy. I mean, so I just, that, that that's inspirational to me to be like, yeah, like, I don't, I don't want to make, I don't need to make a game that everybody says this is incredible. I want to make a game that at least some people say, this is my favorite game. This changed my life. This, I can't wait to get this to the table, that kind of thing. That's a good point. And, and to your to your point, he is probably a little more well-known than Diamond Elevation, I guess. I guess. For a certain group of people, he's probably more well-known. But what I think I've seen similar interviews with him. And one thing I love, he, he brought up, he said, I wish there was somebody doing this like I am to push me further. Like he just like yearns for that competition of like, I wish somebody was out there also spending millions of dollars on every video and getting 100 million views on all these videos. He's like, oh, I would, I'd, he said, I'd find a way to take it to the next level, you know? And so- as an artist, it's a little bit interesting. Like if you're creative, a lot of times those people aren't hyper competitive. That's maybe one of the reasons they got into art and not sports or not some other things. And so I think that's one thing to think about if you're listening to this and you're like, well, I'm just not, I'm not trying to beat everybody else, you know? It's like, okay, well, what does it look like to become the best version of you? Like to, uh, to realize in the truth of, of life in general, you're only racing against yourself. Like when we, when we find ourselves comparing you know, our, our races to other people's races, even though we have no idea their backgrounds, how, where, where did they start? Did they start a mile ahead of us in the race? And now we're comparing ourselves and that didn't make sense. And so, but if you can just compare yourself, your art to where it was a year ago, where it was 15 minutes ago, then I think you can find a really cool motivation to get better, to be not necessarily like the best in the world, but can, can you approach it, approach it from, can I be the best version of me possible? And am I doing that? Right? Am I putting in the time, the effort, the the energy, the money to do that? It's yeah, so, some like existential stuff. I would love to explore with you someday. But that's like, what I kind mean, of a man do I want to be? What kind of a human do I want to yeah, be? And I think this yeah. this is not just a hobby for me. Like it is an expression of self. Exactly, because like even the times I look back on my life when things didn't go well, maybe I failed, maybe I didn't get the job, get you know whatever. I look back as long as I can say that was the best I had, then I'm okay with it. Like I can sleep at night. But even the, even the things that have been successful, the things that have done well, there are some, some of those things I can look back on and go, I could have done that better. It went well, but man, I know deep down 
that I could have put in 5% more, 10% more. So I, I don't know how good it could have been had I actually applied everything to it. And that's going to look different you know, depending on what you're working on. And so even though you might win, but, but you still know deep down, like, oh, I could have been better. That's a weird, that's an interesting place to be. But the opposite, you know, I failed, but that was the best I had. So I'm good with that. I learned from it. You know, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. And I was going to say, I mean, I, playing tennis in high school, when I would play people who are way, way better than me and I would get crushed, like that, that, that was still some of the best games I'd ever played. Yeah. Because, anyway. Yeah. No, I'm with you, man. Like when I was at Auburn, I was on a daily basis. I was lined up against a guy named Gerard Powers. And you can look this guy up. He had a really a pretty good NFL career. And I went up against him daily. And he was so much better than me. But every now and then, like, like I don't know, one out of seven, one out of eight plays, I would I would get him. I would make the catch. I would make the block, whatever. And it's like, okay, okay, I can live with this ratio. Because he's one of the, like, he was all SEC. He was amazing. And so what does that look like artistically? And I think that's something, to your point, what you were saying, like, what is your vision? What are you trying to accomplish? Is this just a hobby? Or you, do you want to put something on people's tables that you can be proud of, that you can you can look at and go, okay, this was this is the best I had, right? That's a cool moment, even if nobody buys it. Like, at least you know that. And we can talk about commercial viability and, and things like that later. But Awaken Realms has a quote on their website that is their vision and their motto. And they say, we want to awaken forgotten colors in people's lives, which is to me, like, I, I'm going to steal that from them probably at some point because it's just perfect. It's, I, I want to wake people up to the, these things that they've forgotten are beauty and truth and danger and adventure and competition and cooperation. I mean, that, to me, that is everything that I want out of, out of a game, which I think games simply mimic reality and turn it up to 11. Hundred percent. Okay, so that was one and two. What's three? Yep. Number three. Uh, we're getting real practical all of a sudden. Go ahead and make an LLC. <laughs> um, so th- this is kind of assuming you want to at least do number. This is assuming you want to take it from number three. There's lots of these things that are going to be relevant for one and two as well. Um, but I'm assuming you're at this point wanting to launch your own Kickstarter. That you're wanting to go into the, a business of this. Um, the reason I say an LLC, just start with that because it's it's super easy. It's super cheap. Hopefully. Probably you have a friend that's an accountant or a lawyer that can set this up for you. They know how to do it. You, they'll pay you, you know, it's a hundred bucks or whatever it is for the, yeah. you know. Or LegalZoom. I used LegalZoom when I started mine way back when. Absolutely. Just do it. And please don't get hung up on your name because think about it. Like the, mo- at the time, certainly number two, I think right now, most popular game in the world, the company's name is Cephalofair. Like it's gibberish. It means nothing. <laughs> most name, people can't pronounce it, let alone spell it. Yeah. Names don't matter. Like it was a little more important for your board game, but I just get a game because then you can start tracking things like your taxes. You can start tracking things like um, uh, basically anytime you're using Kickstarter and uh, game found, anytime you're using Google play store, any, any of that stuff is going to be re- encouraging you to have an LLC. And certainly it protects you as an entity. If you guys, if you take this somewhere, there's a, it's important that they don't still can't come after your house. Like an LLC will protect you. There's a, it's literally limited liability corporation so that if you have, you're only liable, liable to a certain amount if something goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing is you get to now expense every board game that you buy because it's technically research and development. And so like there's so many nice tax benefits to this. Now you, you have to, I can't remember the years, but the IRS will come after you if you like for a certain number of years, you only post a loss. So you kind of have to be smart 
about what you're doing? Like you can't just keep losing money over and over and over. Yeah. If they determine that it's a hobby, then it's, it's, uh, no, you can't, you can no longer do that. Um, right. So you do need to be kind of making active effort towards, towards that. And exactly. that's, that's a subtype, you know, track every single one of your expenses, track every one of your, you know, at this point, computers, printers, um, anything specifically related to your job, but that's if you're having a play test and you buy pizza for everybody, that's an expense. If you're getting something from the game crafter, that's an expense and just keep a spreadsheet of all of your expenses, because that's going to save you 30% in the long run towards making more games. Yeah, absolutely. And okay. So my yeah. wife is much more tolerable when I say that, well, this is all tax deductible anyway. So. <laughs> That's a good play. Yeah. Even your office space. Like if you use your home office or, or whatever, that area of your house now, there's a percentage of that as your as tax deductible as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, there's so many things in the tax code that are, are nice for businesses, right? For small businesses. Like there's things built in there to help you. And so use those to the best of your ability. You know, find an accountant, especially one that is familiar with crowdfunding campaigns is another thing you want to make sure that you have maybe not just uncle Steve because he took an accounting course and he works for H and R block seasonally. Like that uncle Steve might not be the best guy for what you're doing. Like find someone that really is knowledgeable of small business of crowdfunding businesses. Um, also, also, this is something that I ran into. Make sure your um, the way you label your money. I can't remember exactly what it's called, but anyway, it's the accrual method, not the cash on hand or whatever it is, right? That means you don't have to pay taxes on something until you actually deliver, which is very... Um, and you're referring to the money that you're actually making from Kickstarter at this point. Correct. Game correct. Right. Because like initially, I didn't know anything about this. Well, actually my company started with publishing books, but even still I was running crowdfunding campaigns, so I should have done this. But I didn't realize what I was doing. I was just setting up an LLC. And so I had just the basic normal thing. And the government typically assumes that when you sell something, it's like in the moment. I have a sale and I give the person the item, either in hand or ship it to them. And it's an immediate transaction. However, with crowdfunding, that's not the case. You're talking about six, eight, 12, 14, 18 months different between the time you receive money and the time you're delivering. And so what happens is if you're on the normal method, then the government's like, hey, where's our money? Like you brought in $100,000, but then where's our taxes on that? Because they see it, oh, you, you made a hundred grand. Therefore, we need our, our cut. Well, if you haven't spent the money for manufacturing and shipping and all the things, because the game hasn't shipped yet, then that's going to put you in a weird spot, right? Versus the accrual method, which says, I don't owe the government anything until I deliver. Now there's limitations, like how much time you actually have. It's not indefinite or anything like that. So you have to be aware of the, the laws there, but definitely do that. Cause I had to pay uh, an accountant. It was at least a thousand, maybe two grand to get everything refiled and fixed and changed over and, and all that to get it correct, right. To get it on the accrual method. If I had just done that from the beginning, I would have saved that money. So that's something I definitely want people to be aware of. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anything else on? on? Yeah, go ahead. Yep. Yeah, so the, the, in addition to that name doesn't really matter. Go ahead and get all of your stuff on Gmail, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or X, whatever Twitter is now. Um, YouTube, uh, website, any of that stuff that you think you could possibly want, go ahead and get it now. Uh, just, it'll save you a headache in the, and there's so many names that are taken. So it's just good to go ahead and know that from the get go. Right. And you don't want, this is a little different because board games are much smaller part of the overall market, but there was a video game company that announced their new game they were coming out with and they had not secured the domain yet. 
And so somebody saw the video and like went on GoDaddy and then like bought the domain for $5. And then was like, Hey, how much do you want to buy this? Yeah. Now I think there's some rules against that. Like the government has realized people do this. And so there's some, but anyway, to your point, like, go ahead and do it. Just save yourself. Just save hassle. yourself a headache. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Number four. Okay. Maybe the most important one of them all is create a great game. Now I don't want to beat a dead horse here. You can listen to the other 400 podcast, 300 and, seven or whatever podcasts there are on you. But a couple of points I want to just encourage, which were biggest improvements and helps for me. Um, bring your game in front of people as fast as possible and specifically bring your game in front of the other designers as fast as possible. Uh, we have a proto ATL here in Atlanta once a year, and it is the most valuable resource I could possibly imagine. Um, in the meantime, go to BGDL pod, uh, Facebook group, do that. And just get your game in front of other people, especially designers, because they think designers think differently. Yes, the average person can tell you if your game is fun, but a board game does, a designer can do much more to show you, hey, maybe consider this. Have you thought about this? Have you played this? This is a good mechanic that you should consider. Um, I just think that's invaluable. To- oh, yeah, 100%. Uh, the number of times I've been able to refer someone to a similar game, um, it's, it's all the time. Right. Where I can say, hey, you should play this because I think it might give you some ideas or at least watch a review or go to Dice Tower and watch a review. If you don't have time or money or whatever, there's no reason why you still can't understand how this mechanism works. And you get so much value from that. But yeah, to your point, gamers can tell you why or why gamers can tell you that something works or doesn't work. Designers can tell you why it works or doesn't work. And that's valuable information. Now, don't only play your game with designers because they're not necessarily customers. They're not necessarily people in your demographic. And so you kind of have to have a nice little sprinkling of, of all this. I would actually play test more with just gamers in general, but to make sure you're playing with the designers as well, because they're going to see things differently. But yeah, hundred percent agree. I absolutely agree. Um, a few more things here. So blend play test. I know, I, I don't know. Is it still a part of your slogan for BGDL? Um, did I remember? Well, like, did, at the did, end of every episode? Yeah. Every episode, is yeah. It still no, no. I took it out when I, I changed the format. But yeah, uh, did I mention keep playtesting? Yes. Yeah. That's <laughs> 301 episodes or something like that. It's Eric Summer in his like chocolatey smooth voice saying, yeah. keep playtesting, guys. Like, keep, and and keep specifically playtesting. do some blind playtesting. Get this game in front of people who don't know you and are willing to tear your game apart. This is, I would say this is more helpful later on because it gives you a sense of, is the, does the teach work? Are they playing the game exactly how I'm wanting them to play it? I'm so used to teaching the game exactly how I know it. And people can feel my enthusiasm and feel my, I know the game so well and how it's exactly how it should be played. We just want to get that out of there, you know, before you press play on or launch on Kickstarter. Right. Two of the things I love to do is one to say, Hey, uh, would y'all mind helping me play test this game for a friend? Because now, you know, they don't know that the designer is at the table. You know, they're like, oh, yeah, Bob. You know, we'd love to play just Bob's game. And they feel more, a little more open. They don't know Bob. You know, and they'll be like, hey, this is broken. This is screwed up. I hated this. And they might give you a little more open or free information than if they thought Bob was actually at the table. That's one thing. Two, I love to give people the game and say, okay, here, like the blind testing and whatnot. So here's the game. Here's the rule book. Teach me how to play. Because now you're testing your rules making sure those are clear and concise and you're taking notes about what people are getting hung up on or, oh, they, oh, they put that in the wrong place. I need to clarify. I need to have a diagram, whatever. So not only testing the game, but really testing the entire experience from cracking the box and setup 
and rules learning all the way through the game to putting everything back in the box, which you can definitely tell a lot of publishers don't do that because it's so hard to get some of these games back in the box because you like you take it out and you're like, I don't know how this fit together. The box will not close. I know it closed before. Why doesn't it close now? It's because I got everything in the wrong spot. And so when a publisher, especially with a bunch of miniatures or whatever, like give me a diagram about how this thing like Legos itself back together. Or prints it in the box itself or however you want to exactly. do Exactly. Something, right? But again, if you're not testing the entire experience, to your point, like you know how the thing fits in the box. And so it's easy for you. But when you have a brand new group of players, they don't have any idea. And so now they're just like shoving the thing down. They're like trying to close the lid and it opens like, like you push it down then it opens back up like half an inch and it just bothers your OCD and you can't have it on the shelf because it's not all the way. Absolutely. I'm having like a traumatic moment of remembering. Like, but anyway. <laughs> it's therapist we got this. I can't <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, test the entire experience. Yeah. I, and I think a supplementary one to that is I also work with a developer I did not really for my micro game that I'm publishing, but for my big game, it's just, I want to be humble enough to be like, again, I'm not that interested in having my name in lights. I want to, I want this game to be as as good as possible. And so I outsource a lot of my playtesting, even to my developer. They do a lot of my playtesting, a lot of implementation mechanics. Um, Certainly there's some of that that I can do at home, but when it comes to like finding groups, I work with Game Weaver Games. I think you are working with them. I am. They have one of, they have a game that I was talking about earlier that we're still like working out some kinks and trying to get that figured out. Yeah. I love it's Greg brilliant Rubio's. what he's done. Cause he works with college students. And so he just has access to infinite college students that can play right. these games. Um, a part of this too, a, a little tip on prototyping. So as you get into understanding, as, as you want your game to be a little bit more than um, cardstock or, you know, magic, the gathering cards or sleeves, uh, you want to go with something like the Game Crafter, Print and Play Games, Launch Tabletop's a new one. And my only tip here, Game Crafter, if you hear this, please know that I'm a loyal servant, but their popularity has gotten them to the point where they're prohibitive for me now. They're, they're, it takes them about two months to get stuff. Um, and so Print and Play Games will get you stuff. I've gotten things in as little as like five days from clicking send or buy to getting it to my, to my home. So I love, there's a lot of things that Game Crafter has, which is great. Print play games and launch tabletop both require a little bit more finesse as far as how you do your files. And uh, usually you yeah. need to have a their systems up. aren't quite as user friendly for sure. But you're talking about the difference between 60 days and five to 10. Like that's a huge difference. Like, okay, learn the system. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the answer. There. Sure. It'll yeah. save you. 55 days um so yeah. or having to pay double the price right so i love what game crafter did they're like hey this yeah. is going to take two months or you can double the price of the game and we'll send it to you in three days so it's like yeah. i see what you did there so you can do that but it's going to cost you a lot more absolutely and i say that and i've used game crafter for all my stuff for the last oh, yeah. four years so i am i'm loyal and if they ever fix that i'm happy to go back yeah, um, i assure you jt because i'm the same way like i love the game crafter been using it for years I assure you, JT is trying to figure it out. Like he is yeah. a businessman. He is understanding. I'm losing people because right. of the, the, the lead time. Uh, they'll figure it out. I, yeah. I, I feel I confident. I believe that to be too, true too. Um, go to conventions. You know, bring your game to conventions. Meeting people at conventions is amazing. Um, that's how I met my designer for the, the game that we're, and I'm not even, I wasn't even, you know, booked as a publisher or something. I just was there and said, hey, I want to make your game. Um, you just have incredible people. That's how you like make raving fans. That is you know, I, I think too, there's, there's something beautiful about a convention where everybody is there for four days to be very, very focused on 
big games. It is so invigorating to you as a designer. There, burnout is very real, and this is a, a marathon, not a not a race, not a sprint. Um, but I think that meeting people at conventions and going to conventions is a really uh, encouraging way of you know breathing some fresh air into your your process. Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of publishers I talk to, they say, you know, they're not even really trying to make money at a convention. They're trying not to lose money, of course, but it's really about, like you're saying, building a group of raving fans and connecting with new people, you know, saying, because there's so many games coming out. It's hard for people to know even a 10th of, of the games, you know, coming out on the market every year. I mean, 700 games get released at Gen Con, like good luck to you. And so conventions are a great way to build fans. Also network with other publishers, network with other designers and other people in the uh, in the industry meet with manufacturers meet with logistics and fulfillment partners like get face to face with people and see their quality of their their uh, components and things like that like so many amazing benefits of going even if you don't have a booth just to show up and network phenomenal yeah for sure um and then the last one here i have which is find someone in your life that will give you really good honest feedback this is and I, I'm going to go so far as to say, I don't know that you can find this in the United States of America. Maybe I just think culturally we are too nice. Go to Denmark where the people are very blunt and upfront. I used to work with a bunch of Danish people. Yes. And you knew where you stood. You, you exactly. had, All right. Okay. And because even my good friends in America, I just can't really trust their feedback. I, I had the blessing and the honor of reaching out. I, I'm kind of fearless when it comes to this stuff. Like, Three years ago, I just emailed Matt Leacock and was like, hey, will you talk to me for 15 minutes? And he was like, sure. I don't know if he still <laughs> does that, but that Matt, that was like one of the highlights of my, I like fangirl, literally. Um, but I reached out to Jamie Jolly of Shadowborn Games, who does Oath, Oathsworn, and they've raised over 5 million uh, plus with GameFound stuff. But I just said, hey, I love everything you're doing. Would you guide me, coach me, like mentor me? And he has been invaluable because... He is not afraid. He'll, he'll ask, he'll say, hey, do you want me to be honest about this? And it's like, yes. He's like, okay, your game's generic and boring. It's like, oh, okay. It's like, cool, two years. Like, let me, let me, you know. And I mean, fortunately, he goes into more than that. It's not just like mean, but I just, I'm not interested in making a mediocre game. And I just found that people who can be honest, know, knowing like that you want it is, is so valuable. And I think I got some of that same stuff from you. I, I've done now, I don't know, five or six coaching calls with you. And I'm wanting, like, I'm not wanting just to be your friend. Like, I want to make the best game possible. You have way more experience than I do. Like, show me and teach me what to do. Yeah. Well, from my perspective, there's no value in me coaching you and not telling you the whole truth. You know, they're like the best coaches I had, sports and life in general, uh, business and everything, were people that would tell you exactly what you needed to hear and make you glad you heard it. So it's not just saying, hey, this sucks. It's saying, hey, this sucks or this could be better. Let's talk about why or how or, or experience or wisdom, whatever. And so finding, yeah, or just having a group of people that are in your life that will be honest with you. Yeah, like you're saying, I don't know if there's, there's, there's not very many things in life more valuable than that. Yeah. You know, a lot of times it's, it's yeah, marriage. Yeah, people that love right? you and are willing to be honest. That is a... That's a right, right. Um, you know, hopefully you have a good a spouse that you can rely on that will be honest with you. Like my wife. And because also your spouse can tell you without telling you, like, I know when I do something, whether it's a YouTube video or a game or an idea, like she doesn't even have to say negative things. And I go, you hate this. 
<laughs> like the way she'll say nice things sometimes, like the way she'll be polite. Yeah. I'll be like, I know you're trying to be nice to me, but I can tell by the, the like how you're phrasing things. Like, this is not good. Why is it not good? And she's like, okay, well, here's the deal. <laughs> and then she'll just tell me the honest truth. Like, okay, that's what I need. Right. Um, because that's how you get better. The best in the world typically have some of the best coaches. Like they have people that would be honest with them, right? Yeah, uh, Lewis and Tolkien. Go, I mean, we. I'm that's. I'm wanting that yeah. kind of community of, you know, co-create. And I do think that BGDL helps a lot with that as well, because there are a lot of amazing designers in there who are further along than me, or at the very least, just willing to give honest feedback. Every single post I've put in BGDL has gotten at least two comments, if not fifteen, and they just they we everybody wants everybody else to succeed, and it is it is a very beautiful community. I I, I truly mean that. No, I. It's something I am so glad to be part of. I'm glad that we built it from the beginning to be a place where people can ask questions and it's open and it's honest, but also hopefully encouraging and helpful. You know, that's the kind of thing. It's like, say what you need to say, but say it in a way that's helpful, not just being critical and all like, oh, this sucks. But, but also you have a lot of people that are foreign, that English is not their first language. And so sometimes they are a little more direct just because that's their culture and that's the way they've learned English. And like, they're just going to tell you straight up. That's nice. But they're also, they're not necessarily your friends. Right. It's not someone that's going to have to see you at Thanksgiving or have to see you, you know, over the holidays or whatever. So they can just be like, hey, have you thought about this? Or, hey, this is a ripoff of this other thing. You should check out and make sure you're not doing it to somewhere, whatever. Uh, yeah, to your point. Yeah. Okay. So that was number five. That was number four, actually. Number five. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're, hey, hope y'all buckled. Hope y'all brought a notepad and you're getting some good value out of this. Everybody's listening because we got some cool stuff ahead. We're only halfway through. All right. So number five. Yeah, not even. Number five is create a community. Um, that is, again, making a website, creating a newsletter. So Andrew Lowen over at Next Level Web, which I know was at the beginning of this episode, um, has some really amazing stuff. They have a really great podcast for some of this. Uh, I think the big thing that he would say, and I certainly encourage, is understanding the virtuous cycle, which is basically you want all of your uh, Instagram, social media, all of your different avenues pointing to the next one. So get your newsletter to point to your Facebook group, which points to your website, which points to your Instagram, which points to, you know, you just want that feeding upon itself. So I think it, people that get excited about your game can go to learn more and they're good. Like they can dig in as far as long as they want to. And it just provides more opportunities for us to touch them. Yeah. <laughs> in, in the most positive way possible. In the most positive um, and platonic way right. possible. Exactly. This is something I'm trying to think the best way to say this. Um, I have struggled with this from a consistency standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so if I can speak from an experience of, hey, don't don't do what I've been doing. What I'm trying to get myself into now is more scheduled. It feels weird because it, it doesn't feel as natural or as organic. But if you're like me and you got too many things going on and you got a bunch of kids and you got your mortgage to pay and you got a zillion creative projects in the works, create a schedule and then just kind of work the plan, right? Work the schedule and, and say, okay, every third Thursday, I'm going to put out an update on the Facebook group. But anyway, put it in a, a day, a time, a regular thing. One, people can expect it. You know, they kind of get used to that rhythm. But two, it also holds you accountable because sometimes, unfortunately, I'll go like two months. I won't even think, oh, I haven't, I haven't posted an update. I, I've been working on stuff. We've been making cool progress. I have things to share. It just doesn't necessarily cross my mind because that's not where my mind naturally goes. My mind is on Design the next cool thing. Work on the thing. Make it better. Do all the stuff that makes this the best product possible. And sometimes I forget to tell people about it. And so I would say just from my own experience, like anyone getting into this, figuring it out, start from the get-go 
with a schedule, build that into your natural like routine. And then it's a lot easier where I'm now trying to like rewire my brain to get that better and, and figured out. Cause like you're saying, it helps make a community it helps uh, build raving fans that are, you know, they can't wait for the thing to come out or can't wait for the next thing. And that's how you build a business. And that, two things there. First off, I, if you can create a podcast or a YouTube channel or a, you know, find some way to pour back into the community, great. That's not going to be a possibility for some people. And at the end of the day, you have time or money, probably. And for what you cannot do with time, you can do with money. And so I, what I mean by that is using Facebook ads, we'll get into that a little bit more, but getting using Facebook ads and Instagram ads to get your content in front of people is just necessary for a lot of people. With how much competition there is and how much excellence there is out there, that's sort of the, the way that it goes is that you just have to pay to get. Now, again, Andrew, I remember he said that he got his mailing list was something like 3000 before he spent a dime. I don't know what he could possibly mean by that. That blows my mind. But for those who are not marketers as a profession, I think there's something to be said for like learning enough of this to begin getting your eyes out there, uh, getting eyes on your, on your content through, through paid means just to, to, to build this more quickly because you can, sure, if you had 10 years, you could do this artificial or organically, but you can accelerate a lot of that with just a little bit of money. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, and also to realize you're going to pay something like nothing's free. You're either paying time or you're paying money. Like that's, that's kind of it. And if you've got some money, then you can save some time. If you don't have any money, you're going to cost you a lot more time. That's <laughs> just with anything in life, especially in business. But, but yeah, like you're saying, being intentional, I think is the main thing, right? Not, not assuming I'm going to launch a campaign and then build it and they will come. Like yeah, unless a burning bush talks that. to you and right. tells you that specifically, <laughs> I would not follow that particular uh, line of reasoning. Uh, right. Yeah. You got to build a crowd and you know, it's, the word crowd comes first in crowdfunding. You need people and then the funding comes. So I think just being aware and intentional about that. Another piece of advice when it comes to your community, we have incredible art. I mean, I'm biased obviously, but I think we have some great art. People can get a bit burnt out. I think of art, like they see something cool and they're like, Oh, that's great. And then they, but what makes a community is a piece of ownership of like, I help decide this thing. So I'm talking everything from pledge tiers, stretch goals, box type, and illustration on the art, on the cover. Um, I mean, everything you can think of, include your community in it because then they'll feel like they're a part of it. We, we have a pledge tier and I literally asked a, our community, like, do you think we should do this or this? And I got fantastic feedback of like, look, you, you, you know, this is why you shouldn't do it this way. This is why you should do it this way. Um, so I just think be humble enough to understand that your community wants to be a part of something. And typically they have really good ideas because they know what other people want. They, they are consumers as well. And it can be great to sort of get out of your tunnel and understand that they they're eager to feel like they're a part of something bigger than themselves. Yeah, it's a good point. And you can do it in a lot of kind of easy ways. I mean, a simple poll of saying, Hey, A or B, you know, do you like it red or blue? Like that's not, it's not gonna change your game. It's not gonna be some kind of ground shaking thing, but it allows people to have a say in the matter and to feel heard, right. To feel like they're part of this process and this experience. One thing I, I, I didn't expect, but it was so fun to be a part of is during the Robomon campaign, you know, almost every update would have some kind of question at the end and a poll. And then people could vote on what, Robomon they wanted to see in you know as the next stretch goal or which you know every stretch goal was like which direction? A or B. 
Yeah. Yeah. Do you want this, you know, the crocodile or the gorilla? And then they would choose and like, okay, cool. And then another thing, this is, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not a like super smart marketer, but like the way it worked out. So I ended up creating an expansion. And what I did was I took all the quote unquote losers from all the polls and I just put those in the expansion. I was like, oh, this is smart because now everybody gets what they want. So when, when a poll came down, it was 5149, you know, and 500 people wanted this thing and just a little under 500 people wanted the other ones. Like, oh shoot, like half the audience now feels bad because they lost, quote unquote, even though, you know, but anyway, our, our silly caveman brains, that's the way it works. But now I can say, hey, if, if your thing that you wanted wasn't there, what's well, over here instead? And it works out really well. And I'm not having to create even more <laughs> polls or anything. Like, okay, we'll just put it over here. And now kind of everybody's happy. Now that doesn't work with everything. That was just kind of like a happy little accident that worked for my game. But something to think about, right? That you can still give people kind of what they want. Maybe it's a promo, right? Where maybe the thing that lost, now you make a promo card that you give away at conventions or you put it in the box and don't even tell people, right? So all the people that picked the other thing that lost, now they go, oh shoot, they put it in here anyway. And all the people that were on the winning side, they don't care because they still get extra content too. Everybody wins. I I think you can come up with some really clever ways to make your audience feel heard and surprise them, which just builds even more raving fans. Yeah, absolutely. I I think another thing I want to encourage is practically. So Facebook groups, especially public Facebook groups are a great way to go for this. Uh, Discord servers are a great way to go for this. Uh, Discord is super um, polished and I, I am biased to them because I'm a gamer, but uh, I just think you, you need a way to stream. Like we, people don't really use forums anymore, except for BGG. BGG survives and somehow breaks yeah. them all. We'll never die. <laughs> we'll never die for sure. Um, but just anything that can streamline that for you and be in uh, discord and Facebook both have really great poll options and ways to sort of in, include your community. Number six. Okay. Number six. All right. Awesome. Art and graphic design. So I I may say some things that are going to make people mad at me. I I don't know. We'll see. We'll just go. And you can push back if you disagree with me. Um, The big thing here is starting out, I had a vision for a game that was basically a CCG in a box where you didn't have booster packs and it was cooperative. So that means I need 400 to 600 brilliantly illustrated cards, but reaching out to Magic the Gathering artists and paying them $800 to $1,500 per illustration was completely out of the realm of possibility. So what did I do? I There's a few resources that I think were super helpful. I started with actually going to Gwent. Gwent has a art competition every single year and people publicly put in their stuff. I reached out to every single one of those people that I thought was good and said, hey, you know, you're a nobody who know you know, but you're brilliant. Do you want to work with me? And oftentimes I could get them to work with me at a reduced, you know, a, a, a rate that hopefully is still livable, but not um, prohibitive to my, you know, income. Now, one of the things that specifically is interesting about Gwent, Gwent is in Poland and Poland is one of the, the big, I would say four, I'll include Poland, Ukraine, Russia, and Romania who are, full of brilliant creators. Their cost of income is, uh, cost of living is, is pretty low, especially relative to the United States. So you can find incredible illustrators and artists and graphic designers and animators and such that will work with you for something that I could not afford if I were to try to source that in the United States. So for the, for, I don't, I, I don't, I, I'm sorry for the United States people, 
fortunately we have things like magic the gathering where that you know you can live but for me that was a that was a necessary step was to find people that could work for me at a, a rate that was much more you know sustainable right i mean it's just it's just the nature of, of business right if when you're looking at a project you have to be very upfront and open and honest about the money side of things and you have to go okay this is the art budget this art bu- budget does not work because my company is a certain size. I only have this amount of money. I, you know, maybe I can increase that here or there. Maybe I can sell some games. Like I can go, I don't know, donate plasma. I don't know. You can like find a little extra money here and there, but like, you just kind of be honest. And so finding someone who lives in another country where the cost of living is much, much lower, but still a high quality, like you're not, not paying them, you know? And a lot of times I, a lot of times I will find like, I'll go on Reddit or I'll go somewhere where, where artists are posting, Hey, commissions are open. And I'll just ask them, what are your rates? Here's what I need. Here's the number of illustrations, assets, cards, whatever. What is your rate? And then they'll tell me and I'll go, okay, that works. Or, okay, that's too much. And so it's not like I'm going in, and on the Polish forum, like, hey, I know you work for cheap, so I'm going to find you. Like, no, I just, <laughs> but a lot of times when people give me rates that are maybe a little lower than I budgeted for, when I, you know, talk to them a little more, it's like, oh yeah, I live in the Philippines. Like, oh, okay. That makes sense why your rate is, is lower because it just is what it is. Um, and honestly, if they give me a, a rate that's too low, like, like I don't feel comfortable paying you that. Can I pay you a little more than that? Like, you know, if, if I'm budgeting $50 or $70 per card and someone says, oh, I can do it for, I don't know, 30. Like, mm, I, I would rather, I would rather pay you as like, it's already budgeted. Like, this is how much I have. Like, this is how much I want to pay someone to do a great job. And so I, I've never had an artist tell me no. <laughs> They've never been like, no, 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 no. Keep the extra $10, $20 for a card. But, you know, figuring out your budget and then just finding people that can work inside of that budget. There's nothing wrong with that. You're, you know, I, I don't know. Don't apologize no. for that. I, it's interesting. I, I maybe as a, I don't have an MBA. I don't, you know, I don't know. Maybe I'm messing up this big time. I don't have like a specific budget. I, I kind of look at my, how much money did I make this week from, I, I'm a therapist by trade. How much money did I make this week by trade? Okay, how much? This is how much I can work with my artist. Now, granted, several of my artists have been working with me now, semi full time, twenty plus hours a week for three years, and I I make enough to be able to pay them, you know, consistently. I, I think so. Practically, so I mentioned the Gwent Art Contests. Also, ArtStation is fantastic. Uh, I was reaching out to about ten artists per week um, with ArtStation, and I, and I would I just. I think treating people with a lot of dignity and respect of saying like, Hey, this is what I can do. This is what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm new to this. This is my vision. I, here's some things that I can offer. I'm going to try to do, you know, bonus, yearly bonuses, um, yearly raises. I want to do some profit sharing. I'm talking like half a percent, maybe 1%. That's all I can really reasonably offer, but hopefully they can. And I, I mean, to, to be candid, I think I try to attract people to some degree with my passion and like come on board with this. If, if possible, I will make you rich. That's not really my goal, but let's make something incredible together. And I just find that the artists out there, at least that I'm working with, their dream is to make beautiful stuff. That's what they want to do. They're not necessarily looking to, you know, get rich off of this. It's like, how do, how can we work together to make this possible? Every bit of my free income is, I live with my sister. Like I, I married and I, my wife is very patient, but like all of this is going to this because I, I'm not looking to get rich off this either. I just want to make this, you know, as sustainable and, and excellent as possible. Like you're saying though, you just have to be honest about where you're at. Like if you've got a bunch of kids, that gets a little more challenging, but you're in a really interesting spot right now where you can free up 
a certain amount of income. And that's something I've talked a lot about on the show in the past. You know, if you want to do something in anything artistic, it's very challenging to make money. Like, like we were saying, you know, people posting on art station, they're not doing this to get rich. Otherwise they'd be coding or, you know, doing programming or like working at a bank. Like they'd be doing something very, very different uh, if, if they're trying to do this professionally. But what can you do to change your lifestyle so that you can open up some flexibility to do, to do these other things? You know, I spent eight years in Honduras. Honduras is very cheap to live. I was also living for free because I was a teacher and uh, being part of that organization, I got free housing. So all of a sudden I've got more money to pour into these projects because I'm not constantly having to worry about my, you know, my mortgage and all these like other things that you have to deal with. If you have a high mortgage, does it mean you need to move to a cheaper place? I live in the middle of nowhere, Alabama. My mortgage, like for a pretty decent sized house, like is so much cheaper then I've got friends living in Atlanta that pay like three or four times what I pay for a two bedroom apartment. It's like, Hmm, well, if you were trying to start a business or go into, you know, being an entrepreneur or whatever, you might have to make some lifestyle changes. And that's just part of it. And just being honest about that. And I actually didn't mention this on number two. So I'm going to cheat real quick and go back to it. But one of my encouragements is don't go into this to, to make money. There are way easier ways to make money. Become a therapist. I, you can work three days a week and make a living. It's great. But when it, comes to board game, you are fighting against hundreds of thousands of people that absolutely love this and would do it for free. So do people make money and livings off of? Absolutely. And that's fantastic. But I just think it is foolish and it's just too much work. I mean, if I were to pay myself an hourly rate, it would be like, I don't know. I mean, obviously it depends on how well our, our stuff does, but I'm assuming it's like a dollar an hour or $2. I mean, I just... It, that's not the point of why I do this. I do this because it brings me a lot of life. And I found that every step of the process, mainly the co-collaboration of all this is just really invigorating for me. Um, the only other things I'll mention about art and graphic design, create a basic contract to make sure that everybody's on um, the same page. I know that Jamie Stegmeyer has one of these from one of his articles. Um, if you need a basic contract, email me, I'll, I'll send you one of mine. Um, and this is not, to clarify, this is not like a legally binding thing because you're not going to track down an artist in Indonesia or Poland or Russia for $2,000 of art. Like it wouldn't make sense. So this is much more about giving them the benefit of the doubt and saying, look, I want to make sure we're on the same page. Who has final, you know, uh, copyright, who, who has, who has legal ownership of this? Who's can I, can I do, you know, prints or set, can I post this on my social media? When can I do that? Is this before or after? So all of that is just about really clarifying expectations to make sure that there's just a lot of communication between the, the two of you, not necessarily because you're going to sue them if they take your art and go somewhere else. Right. This is mainly to clear up any possible gray areas to clarify things. You know, I've said this on the show in the past, like a guy I heard in business, he says, I don't call them agreements. I call them disagreements because the only time we look at them is when we disagree. And so it's just making sure we're, again, like you said, on the same, on the same page. The only other thing I'll say for this is avoid third party stuff if possible. Um, I, I only say this to say it great. Like I know that Fiverr connects people in really amazing ways and certainly they offer a service. It grieves me that they take 20% from their artists, uh, do the work, like do the legwork of going on an art station and find people. They are so receptive nine times out of, I mean, people just, if they want a freelance job, they, they will get it because yeah. yeah anyway, that's important. Well, a lot of times an art station too. I think there's a, a a tab or like there's something that says open for 
commissions or open for jobs, like I think there's a way for them to label that they are open to that. Because I've run into a lot of people who are like, no, sorry. Time work, that, that, uh-huh. Those are all tags you can search for. Yeah, exactly. Okay. What's next? Uh, manufacturing. This is number so seven? All, all of this stuff should still, yes, this is number seven. All of this should be done before Kickstarter, um, before you press launch. Uh, so get quotes, reach out to different people. The two that I would recommend most, first and foremost, Long Pack and What's Games. Um, there's lots out there. Panda's great. Uh, but as far as it comes to price and communication and quality, Long Pack and What's Games are the two that I found that were best. Longpack is responsible for things like Everdell and Brass Birmingham and Dune. What's Games is responsible for Ark Nova, Seven Wonders Duel, Clank, Kings of Tokyo. So these are incredible companies that are making brilliant games and their prices are phenomenal. Um, and they're just, look, the communication was fantastic. I'm going with Longpack for my stuff. If anybody knows Linda out there, she's amazing. I, I've met a couple of other designers or publishers. They're like, you know Linda? It's like, yes, we love Linda. Uh, because Linda just has a lot of enthusiasm and is very quick at getting back. Um, I, I think the, a couple little things I'll encourage here. There's certainly other uh, manufacturing episodes that people can dive into. But look for a minimum and a deluxe level. Try to figure out how, how inexpensive can you get. Um, you know, there's the typical rule of the 5X. I think that rule is good but can be tweaked when you're talking about more and less expensive games. So for example, our game, I'm, I'm happy to put any of these numbers out there. If anybody wants more stuff from me, let me know. Um, our game costs about a dollar to make, which means te- technically a 5X would be you know, uh, $5 per game. The profit margins of that would just not work. Any mistake we would make would be devastating. And so we're bumping up to ours to 10. Now, fortunately, but ours is a button-shy type game. And that is sort of the standard that they've already set is about that $10 range plus shipping. And I, I think it's just be wise about kind of how much profit, how much margin can you, can you go for? Um, 5X is not a set standard, but it is important to think, especially for your first time to have something like that built in just because you're going to make mistakes. Yeah, definitely agree on that. Another thing to think about as far as my experience goes, like you're saying, what's the minimum uh, number, like the minimum order quantity, you know, long pack is excellent, but I think their minimum is 1500. And so if you run a crowdfunding campaign and you only get 504 backers, it's like, where are you going to print a thousand extra? That might be too many, you know? So think about that. Also, some companies are better than others when it comes to specific things. Some companies do better miniatures than others. Some do better dice. Some do have better cards. Like there's different levels as far as the components and quality and things like that. So if you have a game that has, especially if it's something like to really a center point, like a, like a, one of the main like backing reasons, one of the main reasons people back it, you want to make sure that's excellent, right? So if you have some really beautiful miniatures on your crowdfunding page, but then you happen to work with a company that doesn't have exactly the best detailed molds, uh, don't do that, right? Work with a company that really focuses on miniatures. This, this is another reason that we went with a small game for our first game, because I want to learn these things. Also, when you make a game and it costs a dollar to make, so if our minimum order quantity is 1500, but really we're probably going to go to with at least a 5,000 order print run. Now we have kind of like built-in business cards that are like, Hey, you want a free game? Cool. Or like we have a, a standard, you know, for a company, which is if you can find us anywhere and play us in a game, we will give you a free game of, of Tic Tac Slash. That's the, the game that's coming out, which is, I love the fact that I can give away free games. I met some random guy at a Disney world and his, he was there with his son from Scotland. And I was like, you want a free game? It's like, I love being able to to do that, and I couldn't do that with. First off, I couldn't keep those in my backpack, but I couldn't do that with a you know a ten or fifteen or thirty dollar 
you know, manufacturing cost game. Well, you could, you, you just lose money real quick. <laughs> just losing. For, sure. for sure. For sure. Um, the only all other right. thing here I'd say is make a spreadsheet and try to get all these numbers out as best you can. Um, board game business podcasts have a couple episodes specifically breaking down some of these costs. Uh, Drew, James Hudson from Druid City Games, Gabe sent me this one, um, has a breakdown where he looks at very specifically what his costs. And that goes into things like, you need to keep in mind Kickstarter costs, credit card fees, uh, potentially like ex, um, exchange rate to, if you're working with people in China. How much are you paying your artists? How much are you paying your designer? How much is manufacturing? How much is shipping? What are you doing for shipping? And then you get into all sorts of shipping is its own beast, but we're going to cover that one in a second. But keep a spreadsheet of all this and really try to work out, okay, how much profit are we really looking at? Because we, at the very least, you want to be you know breaking even, hopefully making a little bit of money. Yeah. One of the best things that I learned, I think I got this from Edo at uh, Pencil First Games, is to start thinking in terms of what is the cost of this per copy of the game. So for instance, if art is going to cost $2,000 and I'm going to print a thousand copies, okay, then art costs me $2 per copy. And so if the manufacturing costs, like you're saying, well, your game is a dollar. Okay. Well, well now, now it's $3 that's and then graphic design costs a certain amount. So now maybe that's, I don't know, 50 cents per game, or, but then you get the real actual cost of the game. Cause you, then you look at per copy and then you look at MSRP. So I'm selling this game for $10, but then if I overspend for art, then I'm really messing up my margin because per copy, you know, and I'm going to have to print way more copies to get that per copy you know, number down. But anyway, that really, really helped me in thinking through every decision in terms of, okay, well, how much does this, does this add per copy of the game? And is it justified, right? If this is going to be an extra $3, and same with marketing, right? If you're going to go out and try to market and spend $5,000, and you're printing a thousand copies. It's like, okay, is it worth $5 per copy to do all this marketing? Maybe I need to do something different, especially if you have a very small margin, which you're going to have a small margin if you're doing a small game or likely if you're selling a hundred dollar game, a little more margin to play with, but just something to think about. Totally. I, I talk about marketing here in a second. Uh, you mentioned this and I think, it, I mean, it's just inevitably true when it comes to marketing, we have a $10 game. And it costs me, so just to give you some numbers, I'm getting about 34 cents on my for my cost per click. And then and that is right now I'm sending them, and I know Andrew, forgive me, but I'm sending them to Kickstarter page, not to my newsletter stuff, because our website's not finished. Um, but so I'm sending them my Kickstarter page, and then about 10% of those are converting into uh, so that means I'm really paying. Some, something like three dollars and forty. I'd have to. I'd have to look back at the math. I have it written somewhere. More than thirty-four cents. Yes, more than thirty-four cents. No, it's 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 definitely more than that. So, I, I think I actually remember it's some, somewhere between two and two fifty for for a conversion uh, for a click through on um, Kickstarter, uh, a follow on Kickstarter. However, the general guideline for that is something like one in five or even one in 10 of your followers will actually back your game. So then we get into things like I'm paying at least I'm paying around $10 for a follow. So I'm not making any money on my marketing. What I'm doing for my marketing is making sure that we fund day one, because that is so critical. And so I'm willing to put in some money and even sort of invest to make sure that happens because then it's like, okay, we got a winner and people can come and look at our game and have no fear of like, Oh, is this going to back? Is it not going to back? I don't want to back a loser. Um, But I just think that it is, Super important for you to understand that 
the smaller your game, yes, the marketing is, is more expensive, but we're talking about hundreds of dollars again, not, you know, thousands of dollars to, to learn a lot of this stuff. Yeah. That's a really good point. And, and to your, to your point, like just have the numbers. Don't just throw money out into the wind and hope for the best. Like have a spreadsheet, figure it out. What is your cost per click, cost per follower, cost per backer? And does it make sense based on your actual margin? Continuing with manufacturing here, that's technically my number eight. So we're moving there anyway. Um, I remember Andrew Lowen said that his ideal, and now this was a few years ago, so I don't know if inflation has changed any of this. I know his original- Inflation changed everything, so we'll assume it has. (laughs) He said that the ideal is about a uh, 20 cents- per click through. Now that's, if I can go into this real quick, I, if you can, if you can afford hiring somebody like next level web, go for it. Absolutely. I actually worked with this guy named Sindri that I met on board game design lab and he was super helpful mostly to get me this piece of data, which I'm hope, hopefully, and you again, reach out to me if you need me to walk you through this. Cause I'm happy to do it for free. Facebook ads has a way to target a specific audience that is really, really helpful and narrowing down your audience. And so what, cause what you can do is you can say, I want people who are interested in this and this and this. So I'm, I'm, I want people who are interested in Kickstarter and board games or card games and fantasy or like, cause I have, for me, I have a few things that's like, you know, chibi or, you know, art, that kind of stuff. So now I've got people who come across my posts and they're interested in all three of those things of there's a pretty good chance that they're going to like this thing. So when I did that, I was able to dramatically improve my success when it came to my click-through rate. Then I, I played a, around a lot with some A-B testing where I was able to look at different backgrounds. I really worked on my, I do a lot of like graphic, I don't know any illustration really, but I get my illustrators to give me stuff that I can use for my graphic design. I have a decent eye. My sister-in-law is a graphic designer, so I get her input. Um, but I was just playing around with a lot of stuff. Like, what if I put this here? What if I put this here? Because I was... Something similar, I was getting a, you know, about a dollar twenty per click through. That's pretty bad. And then I was able to mark, bring it down to about a eighty uh, cent per click through. And we really want to get that down as low as possible. But I was able to get it down to around a thirty four cents per click through, which I'm really happy with right now, especially considering I started this about three days ago and we're launching in, in less than a week. Yeah, but like you said, split test, split test everything, A, B, and then do it again, and then you find a winner, and then do it again, and then you, and you'll just keep split testing over and over again and then hone in on what is doing the best because you have the actual numbers. Like the, the tape doesn't lie. You know, it tells you exactly this got more clicks than that one. Okay, let's use use it. And so it makes sense. All right, so this is number eight. Anything else with manufacturing? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I don't have much more, you know, create that spreadsheet, like I said. Um, so then, sorry, for num- that was Get samples. Seven. Okay, that was number seven. So number eight. Yeah. And to clarify, when it comes to some of that, I'm, I'm in the loss. You're going to have to speak to that. So like, I haven't gotten to that point of getting samples, getting, sending final stuff to, because I'm still on the Kickstarter side, there's going to be some stuff I'm expecting to change. Like we're not even a hundred percent on our packaging with the wallet games. Those plastic wallets are great. They're plat, they're waterproof. They, they're very durable, but they're kind of ugly and you can't put any art on them. And the nice thing about a tuck box or a folding like tuck box is that you can put the rules on the box. And that is a, that's been a big sell point. Like a lot of our reviewers have said, Hey, we love this box. Like you should use it this way. Even though I know that wallet games are sort of a, sort of a a niche that people do also really like. So we're going to let our community decide. But to your, like the thing about a wallet though, like a lot of times it's screen printed. It's one color. 
It's really just a logo. And so from a selling standpoint, like no one's going to walk past a wallet game with a one color logo and be like, Ooh, I want to, I wonder what this is. Like, so you're losing target or something. Yeah. Anything like that. Right. It makes it harder to sell just sitting at the the register of a game Mm -hmm. store, right. Where a lot of these games end up. And so if you have art on the box and they can turn over the box and, and look at it and it's got like a little paragraph and it's got the, the age range and the time and all those things are, huge when it comes to selling the game beyond crowdfunding now if you're not trying to do that then don't worry about it you know uh, the thing about button shy is they they only do direct to a uh, customer they don't really worry about retail they don't worry about anything else except getting games in people's hands directly from them so that's not something they're concerned with their, their website needs to look good the images and all that kind of stuff but if you want the box to look nice then wallet doesn't necessarily make sense i think also a box is probably cheaper just because the materials involved it is absolutely it's cheaper yeah yeah. And then to your point, your, your game is so simple. You can literally put the rules, all of the rules on the box. So now you're saving some money because you don't need a rule book in yeah, the box. Yeah. And uh, what we're planning on doing is just having a couple extra cards in there for like rules and variants. But yeah. even that it's, you know, I would you- put, or if you have an extra card, I would put something in there with a QR code that you scan it and it goes to a how to play video. So, and also a dynamic QR code, which is different from a normal QR code. It's cool. You have dynamic ones, which means you can change where the, where the, the click goes to where the scan takes you to, which is super nice. Um, like if you have a rule book PDF, then you can use a dynamic code that if you ever have to update the rule book, which you will, because there's going to be 14 typos that you didn't see and none of the 75 editors found and whatever, <laughs> again, speaking from experience, but if it's dynamic, then you can update the link. And that's amazing. And so I would have those things, even in your case, where the box has the rules, have a QR code or two that goes to a video, that goes to a PDF, just because it's it's just nice to have. You can get samples even before you launch. Like one thing, you can you can reach out to Longpack, Watch Games, Gameland, any of these folks, they have a, a sample box, which they'll either send you for free or they'll send you for free if you'll pay the shipping. You know, five, six dollars, they'll ship it straight to you from China or they've got local uh, fulfillment partners in the States or, or Canada or whatever. Um, they'll send you and you can get a feel for, okay, this is the card quality. This is the miniature quality dice. They'll send you a little box of little goodies that you can also reuse for your game design prototypes. (laughs) Fun fact. I um, I actually thought you were referring to the first like production sample. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, that comes later. Mm -hmm. Cause I actually, yeah. And I met with Belong Pack at Gen Con last year. And so I was able to get one of those boxes from them. They were great. Yeah. And also helps you. Right. It also helps you when you put in the order or when you're putting in for quotes, because you know exactly which GSM for the card, you know, thickness or whatever. You you can speak the language, which this goes all the way back to number one, right? Information. Understand the vocabulary. Understand what you need to put. Like when I just, was just starting out, I would send somebody a spreadsheet and be like, hey, I need 10 dice. And they'd be like, well, uh, what color? Uh, what size? Millimeter? Uh, do you want rounded corners or square corners? All those things, there's a whole bunch of stuff. And you can't just say in color, you have to put 4C, right? There's all sorts of little things vocabulary-wise that you just pick up the semantics and speak the language. If you're going to move to another country to be successful, probably need to learn some of the words. Right? Probably need to figure out how to ask where the bathroom is. And so same kind of thing. If you're going to be working with a manufacturer that especially that doesn't have English as a first language speakers as your representative, Panda kind of circumvents this by having you know North American-based reps that you talk to them, they talk to the factory. That's really nice. You also pay more for it. You're going to pay extra unless you're, you know, printing a zillion copies and it's negligible. But if you're working with one of these companies that mainly speaks 
Chinese or another language, whatever it is, then really make sure you understand what each other are saying, right? Because uh, you'll make a mistake and all of a sudden you, you get something you didn't anticipate and it's like, oh, we got to fix that and it costs you extra money, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, only other things to add on the Kickstarter, and some of these start to get blurry, is, is this Kickstarter, is this marketing, is this ship, you know, but you want to make sure you have a BGG profile, go ahead and do that early because you need to make sure that everything, you know, comes out right and they, you don't like own a page, you are assigned a page and then you have to ask people for, uh, you have to ask them to change it. You can't change it yourself. So that's a way that they keep their quality super, super high, but it, it can be time consuming. We're like, please change the name. It's not quite right. <laughs> also with that, be prepared for a little bit of gatekeeping. Be prepared for the moderator to feel like they are in control. Um, I had a really frustrating, frustrating situation with Robomon where I submitted Robomon to be, you know, to have a BGG page and you had to put in all the information, all the data and the player count and time and, you know, submit some pictures, the cover art, all that kind of stuff. And in the description, I put what Robomon is. And the moderator came back and denied it for a page and said, oh, this is, this is an RPG game. Uh, uh, No, this is a board game. I am aware I'm on Board Game Geek. I am fully aware. Um, I'm a publisher that's published many board games. I'm not just some random user adding a, a, a what. And so it literally took three or four exchanges back and forth. And then me reaching out to someone else to say, hey, here's the situation. Can you push this through? And the guy that works for BGG was like, I am so sorry. And, you know, fixed it. But it does happen. <laughs> so just be prepared for shenanigans over on BGG sometimes. It's just yeah, right amazing. now we have dashes and exclamation points in our name that are not supposed to be there. <laughs> yep. Yeah, moving on to shipping. Uh, I don't have a ton to say here other than to say we decided to keep it as simple as possible. So we're going with send from China. That was your recommendation and we're just doing it. They, their rates are really good and I just wanted to avoid all the headache of working with fulfillment services other than just Send from China is a company that will pick up or you know take your game from the uh, manufacturer and ship it individually to everywhere around the world. And they have prices included for VAT. They have prices included for you know various countries that have weird tax laws and stuff. They're they're fantastic. They've been really really great. Becky from um, Send from China. And a tip here is, and what I've heard from other people is, once you start getting into shipping stuff. Just ask your representative every single possible question you can think of. Um, I'm going to run through just a random list for people to jot this down. If you're working with somebody who's not sent from China, these are things you need to keep in mind and be aware of. So pick fees, packaging fees, processing fees, account management fees, storage fees, volumetric fees, exchange rate possibly affecting prices on stuff, uh, factory to fulfillment, who's taking care of that. Um... Transport to port fees, EXW versus FOB, import fees, and brokerage fees. Now, if I haven't scared you off, go for it. Uh, But my encouragement here is like for us, again, we're just trying to keep it simple as possible, which is we're going for send from China. They're going to take care of all. Yeah, like you're saying, when when a company gives you the cost, make sure they're including everything and not just postage, right? How much does it cost? If it's just a box, then it's probably not that big a deal. But if you have a game and an expansion and a promo and this other doodad that is an add-on, like all of that is going to incur more expense. And so being aware of what the actual cost is. Um, yeah, another thing about Sin from China, you don't have to worry about like VAT registration and all the headaches and kind of go along with- They are your representative. Yep. Right, right. And I've used them in the past. I'm planning on using them 
multiple times coming up going into next year. So with Sin from China, you just have to be aware of the size of your game, right? You want to make sure it's small, under a pound. It's kind of the sweet spot. Anything, like once you start getting up into more than a pound, more than a couple kilograms, you're running into issues where it's probably not going to be cost effective. Also, the bigger the box, the bigger the packaging, the more likely you're going to run into damage and, and things like that. They do a good job like packaging and things like that. But when you're shipping from China to around the world, you just run into more issues when, when the game is, is bigger and bigger. So um, I recommend them. I've used them in the past. There's other companies as well. Sim from China is not the only service that does this. So there's other ones you might be able to find a better price or better packaging and whatnot. But um, I know Jelly Bean Games, Peter C. Hayward is where I first heard about them. So they've used them in the past and had success. But um, yeah, I'm a big fan. If you have a small game and you're just trying to get things out the door, not have to worry about all the freight shipping and logistics that go with, you know, putting container, putting pallets on containers and getting good containers to different fulfillment centers in different parts of the world. And okay, well, only sold 14 copies in Australia. And so now am I going to like, now that it doesn't make sense to send a, a pallet down there. You run into issues when you're talking about worldwide logistics. And in my mind, it's just a lot easier to send it directly from China if you can. Um, okay, so that's nine. Are we going into nine. 10? Yeah, we're going right. into 10. This is here a Kickstarter page. Finally, we're here. First off, I think your Kickstarter advice book is a holy grail of content. Everyone who is wanting to, you know, hopefully you'll keep it updated. Maybe every five years you'll do a revision or something. But <clears throat> it is it is fantastic. And it just... They go into a lot of specificity, you know, 390 pages, whatever it is. I definitely encourage you to go there because they Gabe breaks down each one. And it's a, a really, really good resource for your page. Obviously, you want to make a page and understand that some of these things take time. You have to um, you have to set up your payment of where that bank account is going to go to. And you have to basically you know, you have to figure out your, your pledge, your pledge tiers and where those are going to go. I had a, uh, one of my mentors encouraged me that whenever possible, so we have a $10 game. And if we want to fund with that $10 game, then let's say our pledge, uh, our uh, funding goal is a thousand dollars. That's, you know, a hundred people that we're going to have to get now a hundred people isn't, isn't crazy. But one of the things that he really encouraged me was anything you can do to try to get your provide other opportunities for people to increase their base pledge. So my, my goal is to have my average pledge level closer to something around $22 uh, because we have a game. We have two games that are kind of coming out side by side with each other. They're basically a different skin of the other. And then we have some digital uh, offerings because we're coming out with a, a video game alongside it. And I'll, you know, I think that was a one thing that's hopefully setting us apart. We'll see. Like a video game version of the card game. Yeah, it is a free video game. So one of the things that we know is that people don't have any trust for us right now. We, we have nothing to offer to say, you know, yes, we can reach out to these reviewers and say, hey, you're, you're respected in the community. Maybe people will trust your word. But our goal with that was just let's do a simultaneous video game launch so that people can literally play this game on their phone immediately for free and say, do they like it? You know, so we'll see. Hopefully that works and doesn't bite us in the butt and the people just say, oh, it's a free game. I already have it. Why would I buy it? I don't know if that's going to, how that's going to work yet, but I think. It's yeah. Well, a lot of these folks that are interested in backing card games, they kind of prefer the, the physical product, right? Just because you can play it as a digital version. Um, they still, a lot of times, a lot of times people get both because you know, they, it's different situations, right? Um, but they prefer the physical game. That's why they're board gamers or card gamers in general. Uh, help me go back to 
somebody said just a second ago, you're hoping that your average customer value is $22, even though you're only selling a $10 game. So how, where's the other 12 coming from? Yeah, absolutely. So the first off we have, you know, a $10 base pledge. If you get both games, it's $18. So that's a huge part of that. So we want as many people as possible to get the 18, but then we're offering some other things. So we're offering some digital, there's like a digital tier where you can basically get some content that's just for the digital game. If you want to get a discount from what Google play store would be offering. Um, and then we're offering some things like if you want your likeness or some character, maybe in your D and D campaign in a chibi form, you can get that for a certain amount. And then we're even offering a few uh, offerings of if you want your character that you're getting as an illustration to be animated and put into our game, we're offering that as well. And so those are going to hopefully bring us up, you know, we're offering those up very like 20 and then five. So that's pretty limited. Um, but I'm hoping that, you know, that'll shift our, our average backer, you know, up, up to like that 22. And that makes sense. I, I would say in this situation, I would, I would go for like $15. Like that'd be my goal is to get sure, about 15 sure. bucks as on average, right? Cause you're going to get most people, the vast majority are going to buy just the, sure. the game. Especially and when you so, consider like we have, we're offering a print and play as well. So right. I think that's absolutely right, right. fair. Yeah. I would go for 15, 22 seems a little high. You know, anytime a game is, or, or a, a publisher is offering a game and also an expansion. So let's say it's a $50 game and a $20 expansion. So it's a $70 all in, you know, maybe there's some metal coins or this other thing. Maybe we can get up to a hundred. Let's say a hundred dollar all in deluxe, right? And the base game is 50. A lot of times I shoot for that average being somewhere in the middle, right? So 50 to hundred, obviously is around 75. And so I would honestly go a little bit lower on that. Maybe 70 is my goal. Okay. And then that, and why are we talking about these numbers? Well, that helps me understand marketing as far as how much can I spend to acquire a backer? If I'm going to average 70, and, and once you get in the middle of a campaign, you can know for sure, because, you know, they'll tell you exactly how much money you're averaging. You can do the math yourself and go, oh, there it is. Um, but on the pre-marketing or the pre-campaign side, I'm thinking through, okay, I want to average, let's say $70. And so that means I can spend up to a certain amount and still make money per backer, you know, as far as my marketing, my Facebook ads, whatever. And so that's why, that's why these numbers are important. And you don't want to go too high because that can screw up your marketing on the front end. And you're like, Oh shoot, I'm spending too much compared to how much I'm actually averaging per backer. So just some things to think. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I, you know, I said 22, that's probably a little bit generous. I, the, I did want to bring that full circle to say, and if you remember, I'm hoping this, I'm, hoping to spend about $10 per backer. So have getting myself in that 10 to $20 range feels like a really good sweet spot where hopefully I'm still going to have a little bit of profit. And like we talked about this whole time though, with this, it's not even necessarily about, Oh, I got to make a bunch of money. Like, no, we're building a company, building a brand, learning, growing, figuring things out, proving like just what you said a moment ago, no one trusts you because you haven't delivered anything. You can't point to evidence to say, this is who we are because there's no real evidence yet. And that's why another reason why starting off with an 18 card game, starting with something small is so powerful because hopefully you can deliver this two months, three months. Like you can get this thing turned around quick, especially because it's shipping directly from China. You're not having to wait that extra six to eight weeks of sitting on a boat, waiting in a container. Now it's at the fulfillment center, but they're way behind. And it's going to get, it'll get to you when it gets to you. Like you're eliminating all of that. And I think it's super smart to, to go this direction. Yeah, we're, we're giving ourselves, you know, we're saying that it's going to be three or four months, but I'm hoping we can fulfill or way earlier than that. Hopefully yeah, yeah. We'll be, have, people will be playing this before Christmas. Undersell, over deliver. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cause 
no one ever got upset because you delivered early. <laughs> you know, even if you have to tell them something that's like, oh, six months, even though you really believe it's two, um, you always want to build in a buffer and just, you can't always know. You know, sometimes like the game, the other game you're working on, it's hard to know when that's going to deliver because you're not really sure how long it's going to take to finish because it's such an epic branching thing. That's what I've run into with Robomon. When I set up the dates and say, hey guys, I think I can deliver it by in this amount of time. It was based on knowledge of way back then, even like months prior to the campaign of thinking through, okay, what does this timeline look like? And it was in a lot of ways, just a big old guess. And then getting more and more into development, it's like, oh shoot, this took way longer than I thought. This thing over here, I didn't even know was a thing. Again, you don't know what you don't know and it causes issues sometimes. And now, you know, the dates are getting moved around and pushed back and that, it sucks because now you feel like you're letting backers down. You feel like, hey, I told you a thing and it's it's not going to be the case. And here's my plan. Here's where we're going, whatever. But it, it's way better to have an idea and then deliver early, <laughs> right? Tell people you know, something and then deliver early than the opposite. Certainly there's a lot more details. I, you know, you want to review, you want reviews, you want previews, you want how to play video. Um, you need to cover all your bases and let your comp- people know who are you using for manufacturing and shipping. And um, you need to you do your best to make it look beautiful and, you know, really seem very, very polished. That's the, you know, we, we want people to, we won't, I mean, we're almost creating an experience with the Kickstarter page and we don't want anything to bring them out of that experience of what is this game? Let me learn about it. Let me get excited about it versus, Ooh, do they know what they're doing with shipping? Do they know what they're doing in manufacturing? That seems weird. What are they, you know, why are the prices so strange in that or high or, you know, so we just want to create this almost as an experience as well for them to get excited about the game and, you know, take, we take all the pressure off of the, the rest of it. Right. I mean, ultimately it's a sales page like any other sales page on the internet. I mean, think about how Amazon sets up their sales pages. They've put billions of dollars into that customer experience and it works. So what can we learn from other companies and websites and the way they, they structure things, almost the funnel of kind of how you guide the, the user through the experience. Another reason GameFound is in a lot of ways is so much superior to Kickstarter because the way they, they lay out pages and the way it's navigable, with the little table of contents, so much nicer than Kickstarter's. I mean, it's the same as it was like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago. <laughs> like they haven't really changed much. And so, um, but thinking through it, if you're using Kickstarter, how can you do Kickstarter's job that they should be doing? How can you do that? And, and guide the user through this experience where they learn about your game. They're seeing the images, they're seeing videos and all that kind of stuff. And like you said, and it makes you look like you know what you're talking about. You know what you're doing. Like, oh, this person is legitimate because they've already got this planned and they've got this, you know, these companies that they're working with and all that. It just, it goes a long way. Uh, biggest things here is just keep it simple, you know, and keep it short. You know, uh, there's a, a thing from one of your books that just said, avoid the 30 day campaigns, especially for your first one. There's no point. We're doing 14 days and I, I'm really excited about that because I think I can keep the momentum up. We have some releases planned along the way that are just, you know, exciting, but you know, I'm not having to maintain steam for, for a whole month. Yeah. 14 is nice. Um, I, I've been doing 18 day campaigns. I start on a Tuesday and then end on a Friday evening, although you could do it on Thursday. I don't know that to get a lot of extra on Friday. There's a lot of value in ending beyond like either on or beyond a Tuesday because Tuesday is kind of like the shopping day for, <laughs> for crowdfunding. It just is. And so ending Tuesday at midnight or ending Wednesday at midnight, there's a lot of value in that. Cause you're going to get that extra that's, Tuesday. Yeah, that's good feedback. We're going to change that. Yeah. Uh, but I think, I think what you're doing 
you know, a 14 day campaign. So Tuesday to the next, next Tuesday. Right. Makes sense. I would definitely end it at like 1159 yeah. PM on Tuesday. Yeah, right. uh, if you're going to do that, because like, going into Wednesday, how much more are you going to get? Like, you just got that extra day in there. Um, I'm thinking about doing Thursday at 1159 going forward. So it's a 17 day campaign. Mm-hmm. I don't have a whole, it's a little bit arbitrary, but I think, <laughs> I don't know how many backers. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't know how many backers you get on Friday. Like Friday's not exactly a day where people are like, oh, I want to go see what's on Kickstarter. Um, Friday's more of a day where it's basically the weekend at that point. People are checked out. They're not thinking, oh, let's go buy games. So uh, Tuesday is obviously the best day to start. That continues to be true. Now, was that a self-fulfilling prophecy? I don't know. It just is what it is. Tuesday is Kickstarter and, and crowdfunding shopping day. But then, uh, yeah, the shorter campaign is, is definitely better. If you're starting out, though, there is maybe some value in doing a longer campaign just because it gives you more media cycles more time for people to become aware of who you are. Um, so it is something to to consider if you're starting out. If you're established, I would definitely do two weeks-ish, you know, in that 15 to 17, 18-day range. But it is something to think about. Now, you have a game, I don't know, man. I don't know. I, I would think through, what, what do you want to take on as a company and as a person? Because that's a month of stress, a month of answering comments and posting updates and like that's a month. So maybe from that standpoint, while I'm also doing a full-time job. Exactly. So, so that's something you're, it's, it's the whole picture. It's the holistic sure. thing. Um, so it's not like, Hey, don't ever do a 30 day campaign. Cause there's, there could be some value in that. But I would say personally, both from a like personal experience, but also from a business experience, shorter is just, it just seemingly better overall. All right. So any concluding thoughts, anything, that like, like talking at the beginning, you know, an hour and a half ago, like this has become just a really branching conversation. I've really enjoyed kind of diving into a lot of things and being able to talk to you. Cause you're right again, in the middle, you're in the thick of this right now. And then I've been doing this for several years. And so it's kind of fun to talk about things like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That thing I dealt with five years ago. Like that's been interesting. But, um, now that you're kind of, you're in it, you're, you're sitting on G waiting on, O, you're about to launch this thing. What like closing thoughts, final advice would you give people? Yeah, my biggest thing is join a community like the Board Game Design Lab in every step of the way. Your website, your game design, your Kickstarter page, your ads, your art. Ask. Ask in there, get feedback. You don't know what you don't know, and you have some really brilliant people in there who have done this before, or at the very least have, you know, certainly their own passion for games and want to see something great and brilliant made. And I just, I have found, I've made a lot of relationships, playtesters and um, fellow game designers that we can, you know, go back and forth with in that, in that community. And so I think that's the biggest thing. I don't, you know, not to toot your horn, but I just, it's, uh, there's something to be said for having such a passionate group of people who want to see you succeed because my wife wants to see me succeed but she can only tolerate so much of the, oh, well, this is what Sin from China said. Well, what do you think about this graphic design? It's like, okay, spot the difference. Like, what's the, you know, but people care in Board Game Design Lab. It's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, well, I definitely wholeheartedly agree on that one. Well, Kyle, we've been talking about Tic Tac Slash a little bit throughout this episode. Give me like the elevator pitch. And, uh, you know, as of the airing of this episode, it's, it's live on Kickstarter. So tell people a little more about it and, uh, you know, kind of encourage them to go check it out. So everyone knows Tic Tac Toe and it's, you know, infamously the the lowest rated game on Board Game Geek. And so we ambitiously said, hey, let's make it better. Uh, It is an 18 card game that fits in your pocket. Absolutely can be taught to, you know, an eight year old. There's three rules. 
And it is, I would say, as deep as something like a checkers or, you know, maybe not ambitious enough to say something like chess, but I, I have probably played four or 500 games of it. And I feel like I'm still, still learning aspects of strategy. Um, it is a game that plays in between two and five minutes. And so the idea is that you're pulling that out. We're hoping to do um, completely waterproof cards, waterproof packaging, and that'll kind of let you literally take it anywhere and do anything with it. We're coming out with two themes, fantasy and ninja, if you like either of those. And if we do well enough, we have a third one in mind that we would love to, to bring to market if people are interested. Very, very cool. Well, Kyle, man, really appreciate your time. Thanks for diving into these different steps. Hopefully people found a lot of a lot of value in this, can take some notes and uh, and figure out ways to do it themselves. That's always the, the the goal with these episodes is not just like sitting here and chatting about the theory, but like helping people practically find ways to create games that people love. And so thank you for helping in that and good luck with the campaign. Yeah, thank you so much, Dave. Appreciate it.